Focus on Creative podcast, where we hear from creative experts, influencers, dreamers, and doers, what they've learned and what we can learn from their journey as we explore, respond, and create. Hey, well, it's Rich here. It's so great to be back with another episode of the podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm loving 2019 already and I'm loving this new season. And today's episode is going to be a really good one for you. We have Solomon Lethem or Ligthelm or um, however you might pronounce it. You'll hear what I mean in a minute. But Solomon is a videographer, a video director, and I've known him for quite some time. He's the sort of person that when you meet, you don't realize just how brilliant he is until he starts talking talking and you hear about his experience, his creativity, and even the way he sees the world. A great example of that would be the fact that he's a movie maker, but he's also a songwriter. Probably most of you would know the song Oceans. Solomon was a co-writer on that song. So that shows the breadth of his creativity. He's a musician, a songwriter, a filmmaker, and I think just generally speaking, a creative. So in the interview, we're going to get into his creative process, how he sees the world and how he approaches bringing meaning into the work that he does. They say that if you do something that you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. Well, I think Solomon's a good example of that, where he's doing something that he loves. He's bringing passion to it and he's finding meaning in it. And he's trying to communicate messages through the creativity that he brings. He does passion projects. He does work for corporates and throughout it all he's trying to change the world and he's trying to tell stories that matter so this is harry little interviewing solomon and afterwards stick around because we're answering some more of your questions so first things first say your full name please uh, my name is Solomon Lichthalem, and for Australians or anyone that speaks English, it's Solomon Lichthalem. I know it's like very, it's very, very hard to say. Yeah, it's a bit tricky. I wouldn't even attempt yeah, to yeah. go there. Now, diving into a bit of what you do, who you are, obviously people can put labels on you of kind of like, right. like say you're a filmmaker or whatever, right. but in your genuine opinion, what is it that you do? How would you describe it? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it's funny. I think probably people would kind of look at it. I make films, uh, I make commercials, I make music videos. I, I feel, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the term filmmaker uh, just because I haven't made a film. I'm, I think when I think filmmaker, I think Quentin Tarantino or whatever. Because you're feature filmmaker. Yeah, that's probably what I have okay. in my, in my mind. So it's a, it's a term that I'm kind of a little uncomfortable with. I, I'm a director. Like that's what I, that's yep. what I do. I direct commercials and music videos and working on a feature but it's not something that you know that exists already um but that's yeah director is probably the title i have to write down at immigration in every country i enter in so i've I've learned to become comfortable with that i think even that was initially like Mm -hmm. a hard kind of term to own yeah you know so do you think when you get a feature done you'll accept the name filmmaker? I don't know. I don't know. I think as creatives, we often, there's, you know, we talk about having the imposter syndrome. I think, I think you always kind of feel like a bit of a fraud, you know, like you've chanced your way into it somehow. You've kind of fluked your way into what you do. There's always a level of kind of discomfort with where you're at or the way kind of people perceive you. But I, I, Maybe, maybe one day it's something I'll kind of get more comfortable with. But I, I, I certainly don't think after the first film, I think you're, you know, you, I think it kind of helps you to kind of put your hand back to the plan, put your head down and get the work done, you know. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I want to keep doing. Yeah, very cool. 
And before we jump into like practical of what you're doing now, work you have done, I'd love to jump into like what inspires you, like what stuff you're watching, who are people that you looked up to growing up and even now still. Off the top of your head quickly, what, like who do you aspire to? Who do you think is doing great things? Even just more modern now. Like yeah. what are some modern names that are really doing stuff that you're liking? I think there's 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 people like someone like Harry Fuganaga that I really appreciate the work that he does. Someone like Derek Sion France, people that do films that are really kind of exploring what people are going through. You yep. know, like I think on, on one spectrum you have people that do blockbusters and, and, and those have value if you look at you know, if you look at Black Panther and what that has done for the African-American community, it's like there's a piece of like social commentary yep. that's like really yep. potent. Mm-hmm. I think for me though, I like to find stories that say the same thing, yep. but in a kind of a smaller context, at least. And maybe that's just because I'm young and I'm learning and I, I feel like maybe the story that I can own is something that's smaller on a smaller scale, yeah. but is story that, you know, kind of deal with the, the issues that people go through. I, I once... I, the other person that really inspires me is Martin Scorsese, and I think most people would be very familiar with him. I think his journey is very interesting. He, you know, at, at the start of his career, he was going to—he's deciding between seminary and and doing filmmaking. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, and um, he he was struggling with it. He, you know, he felt like uh, God wanted him to do seminary, but he flunked it. And then, kind of, the road to filmmaking opened up for him. And yeah. I think the thing that even if you look at his films, you know, I think he's he's a filmmaker and he's a human that, you know, has a journey. But a lot of his films deal with people, especially in New York where he grew up, deals with people that are really kind of going through really intense things and, and how they marry their faith with what they're going through. All A lot of his films, even, you know, the films with De Niro that's in there, there's like characters wrestling with faith and how to balance, you know, the real world with their with their faith. And so yeah. he ins- he he really like I think almost like as a the godfather of film yeah. he really inspires me and you know if there's maybe a person I'd like love to sit sure. sit down with you know he, there's there's all these kind of conversations or these interviews with him about how he tried to make silence for twenty years you know the the story of these um of these missionaries who went to Japan yeah um and you 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 kind of really get a sense that like this this stuff that he's wrestled with you yeah. know how how to not be dogmatic in your faith but to actually like hear the voice of God and how that like how you know obedience is really better than sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of the message of that film and I think it's kind of interesting seeing a guy that's really kind of at the top yep. of his of his craft and be able to wrestle with those things in a in kind of a mainstream setting. So he's he's another person that I'd like really love to kind of chat to and that's truly inspiring for me. For sure. I'd love to flip the question. Have you had coffee with anyone that you were like in awe of a little bit? Like that you were a little bit starstruck by and and you you know we're saying like who would you love to? Yeah. Like I'm guessing you live in New York and a lot yeah. happens in New York. Is there anyone you've sat down with and you walked away just thinking that was so good? Yeah. Yeah. I have, but it was it wasn't in a professional it wasn't in a in a filmmaking capacity. I went Paul Neverson, uh, a a friend of mine. Him and I went to go and uh, do this piece that we did for for church a couple of years back, and we met this theologian called Michael Green in Oxford, um, in London, and. I was just like, you know, we Paul and I were reading his books and we was, we were really just struck by this person mm-hmm. that had so much knowledge that also was 
quite well esteemed, uh, you know, uh, had clout, so to speak. I use quotations yeah. because, you know, sometimes that kind of assumed as being valuable. But right. to, to then see a person that's so humble and so inviting him and his wife invited us in, which Paul and I just said, we want to we want to be like like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so I didn't assume going into that that I'd be like really kind of struck or moved by that yeah. experience, but mm-hmm. I was really kind of taken aback by that. Yeah, cool. Very cool. Yeah. And I'd love to dive a bit, bit personal now. So you've got a young family. Yeah. You live in New York. Yeah. I'm from Australia. Right. So I know it's a lot slower than New York right. from what I understand. How do you see your life right now like how's it going do you think because obviously you're learning a lot about having a family yeah you're doing these projects yeah there's a lot going on yeah how would you describe like how you're going with all those things right now yeah I mean I think it's it's a it's a real balance I think when I was I'm trying to think how old I was I was I think I was 23 when I started 24 when I started getting into films yep. and, you know, you pick up a camera and you start shooting and you don't really kind of think the steps ahead of like, this could become a career. Yeah. And you don't really look at like, what does that career then look like? Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, I want to shoot. I want to, you know, this is, I love this right now. And slowly but surely those incremental steps uh, started becoming something that now I'm, I live in New York, I'm a director and yep. this is my career. I remember looking when I started, I, I actually, weirdly enough, I was like an extra uh, on a lot of things when I lived in Dubai before we lived in Sydney. Okay. And I remember looking at directors, it was just as I was starting, as I was like picking up a camera and learning how to shoot. I was, yeah. I had kind of the fortunate opportunity to also be an extra to actually see other directors work. And I was like, oh man, these guys are so busy. Mm -hmm. You know, they're spending time away from family. I don't know how we kind of could ever do that. And then you start to kind of realize like that, that's what the life is, you know? And so I, I do spend half the time I'm kind of traveling, but I think we have a really great support system around us of friends. I, I mm-hmm. wish we could say we had family around us, but my family lives in Bahrain. They, my mom and dad lead a church in Bahrain. Okay. My wife's family lives um, in, in South Africa. So it's a long distance from New York. Yeah. Occasionally we'll get them over. Like we, my wife and I are over here for now five days. Yeah. Um, and my, my family's kind of come over to, oh, cool. to look, to watch over the family in New York. Yeah. But it's a balance. And every trip that I do away on a job, I have to, you know, I, I try and see if my family can come over. If they can't come over, just to like help my wife yep. while I'm away. Um, and if they can't come over, we just like try and like fill the days with nannies or yeah. support. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a financial investment that is absolutely necessary and critical every time flights for my parents or flights yeah. for my, my wife's folks. Um, because, you know, I think there's a lot of support that needs to kind of come around yeah. this vocation, you mm-hmm. know, um, and I'm thankful to have a very gracious wife yeah. that allows for all of that. Very cool. So why New York? Cause you moved around a fair bit. Yeah. And you're obviously there for a reason. Yeah. Why New York? I went to New York in 2010 when I was living in Dubai Mm -hmm. and um, I actually went to LA just before that and I was like, wow, LA is amazing. Obviously, we lived in Dubai and Dubai is kind of conservative uh, Islamic country. I may have a lot of good friends, but that's that's the world, right? And not a lot of kind of creativity going on. It's just it's very business kind of focused. Okay. So I went to LA and I was like, this is amazing. It feels like I'm on a movie set. And then couple of days later I take the we take take a flight over to New York take the train go from JFK underneath you travel kind of underneath the city 
until you kind of arrive at your destination and you right. like walk out and it's like you're in the middle of Times Square and it's yeah. like, this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I instantly fell in love uh, with the city. And um, I was going out with my wife yeah. uh, at the time. She was my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And I called her and I said, that one day this is where we'll be. And yeah. at that time I was, I think I was studying audio engineering or was doing audio engineering. I wasn't into filmmaking yeah. and there was kind of no roads there. There was no kind of way. It was just kind of like, wouldn't it be great right. uh, to live there? And then I just, I just said like, I feel like this is where, where we'd need to be. And I remember we took a ferry. This is kind of a, a side detour story, but we took yeah. a ferry. I took, no, I walked across the Brooklyn bridge. I looked at an apartment and I kind of, in my mind, pinpoint that apartment. I said, one day I was like, love, wouldn't it be great to live there? And my wife went to New York a couple of months earlier, uh, my girlfriend at the time. And when we kind of uh, retold our stories to each other, she had literally done the same thing. And wow. she had looked at the same apartment. Wow. Now we don't live there. Right. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have this like magical ending, yeah. but it was so strange that to both of us, we had like literally earmarked, wouldn't it be great to like yeah. one day. And it wasn't about the fact that we wanted to live like, in that particular apartment. It was just that we had the same dream. And funnily enough, the next season of our lives was here in Sydney. It was almost like that particular exchange felt more poignant almost for like a Sydney uh, move because Mm -hmm. we literally found an apartment that geographically was very much... Uh, kind of a similar situation. Okay. We were in Sydney CBD and we were looking over the bridge, uh, yeah. over the Anzac Bridge towards Balmain and yeah. we kind of like, you know, pointed to uh, an apartment and that's where we ended up living. Amazing. But for us, it was, you know, it was a city that I really wanted to live in and, and then it started to make sense yeah. work-wise. Okay. An opportunity came up to go and live there, to go and work there. Yep. Uh, and it just made sense. I think the film industry uh, or the commercial industry is predominantly in London, uh, LA or New York. Okay. And LA, I say this now, it might change. I know yeah. there's a massive exodus from uh, New York to LA, but it's predominantly in those three places. Yeah. And I just, I have a more kind of colder taste. I like things that are a little bit more European and yeah. a little bit more, there's a little bit more history. Yeah. And so I, that's why I really love New York. I love the energy, the people. It's just kind of my speed. Yeah, for sure. And you, you talked about like the industry, film industry, commercial industry. From all the people I've spoken to over the years, it is a generalization, but it's it's almost like everyone's goal is to get into features. Right. That's kind of the main thing is right. like, yeah, I'm doing this to kind of get into features. Right. And it's almost like this calling to making feature right. films. But so you go to these short film festivals, you go to all these things and you do see a lot of disappointment. Right. Like I've heard lots of interviews with like big directors and everything and and they always encourage people like get good at hearing no. Right. Because if you if you right. actually listen to it, right. you've got no chance yeah. kind of thing. So yeah. in your experience, even your opinion, how have you dealt with like insecurity, with facing failure, with yeah. facing like an expectation that just didn't match up right. to life experience? Right. If that right. makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I mean, our industry is a place of broken dreams. I think it's yeah. like, you have you you have to have a thick skin because rejection comes with it. Mm-hmm. Certainly for directors, definitely for actors, mm-hmm. um, but certainly for for directors, it's like how much resilience do you have because you are gonna get knocked down. And I think you're right in saying that for most people, uh, the journey or the end result is is to do features. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I would say that I didn't get into this to do features. Okay. I think features was kind of it was just like okay, what's 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 the next challenge? for me, yeah. you know, I always felt very comfortable with the short form format, 
you know, um, whether it's like a commercial, like a commercial or a promo, or now I guess I do more kind of music videos, which is now, you know, slightly longer. But now I'm like, I feel like I've done those. I still enjoy those. I feel like I could still kind of keep doing that. Yeah. But I'm definitely interested in features because I want to tell stories. I think the thing that I've learned uh, in the last couple of years that I'm, I'm just getting much more interested in people yeah. and what people are going through and to try and put people's journeys on the screen and create hopefully a sense of empathy or understanding for what, what people are going through or struggle with. And I think in short formats, it's very hard to kind of get that dimensionality, the yeah. three-dimensionality of a person. Mm -hmm. And so my journey almost in a way has been really just understanding people. And I feel like the great canvas in which to kind of explore people's journeys and yeah. what people go through is, is, is in film. You know, mm -hmm. I think we create very cathartic experiences for people. A lot of films can really kind of move you and, and can kind of change the course of yeah. the, the, the way you think, you know, yeah. the same way that a song might. Mm -hmm. But I think film definitely has that like staying power. Yeah. So it's definitely something that now for me has become a, of greater interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Staying power is a good way to word it. Because yeah. sometimes movies come back that were done 20 years ago. Right. But then they get brought up again and they right. even get played in theaters again. Right. Because it's it's like, oh, that's what they were talking about. Right. And then it kind of happened now. Right. You look or at the, like Space Odyssey. It like that, exactly. that film just like it's so old, yeah. but like every like every every like every IMAX, yep. you know, basically like brings that film yeah. back almost every year. You yeah. know, it's this like masterpiece that somehow it was nebulous and abstract. People didn't quite get it at the time. Yeah. But with time, it's kind of like people have savored it more, they've understood it more, they've been able to kind of peel back the layers a bit more. Yep. And now all of a sudden it's like, it's this masterpiece. Yeah. When even like, cause Stanley Kubrick's my favorite director. Right. So you watch that and you go, oh, he was a genius. Like, right. <laughs> like he wasn't just, because like, right. they crazy your genius and you, right. later on you go, oh yeah, they were definitely right. on something that no yeah. one else kind of knew about. So for just practically, that movie has iPads in it. Right. Yeah, the screens yeah. look like iPads. That practically work like iPads. Right. And so you, he was you a watch visionary. that. Yeah, and you go, oh. <laughs> yeah. He saw it. Right. Before Not it was only even was he close. a filmmaker, right? Yeah. Not only was he a filmmaker, but he was like he was like a futurist. He understood yeah. what was going to come in the future, you know, and it's kind of yeah, it's kind of crazy that someone can kind of tap into the zeitgeist in that way. It's yeah. insane. But for real though, realistically. Yeah. You watch Space Odyssey now. Yeah. Do you understand it? No. <laughs> But it doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's yeah. not. It's not the. I, I think, <laughs> for me, you have people that need intellectual stimulation. You need people that have some sort of emotional stimulation. And right. I would say Stanley is very. He's an intellectual mm -hmm. for sure. But that film moves you on like an emotional. Like it just yep. somehow yep. hits with a sense of kind of gravitas that's incredible. And mm -hmm. I, I enjoy films that aren't that easy to figure out. Yeah. You know, the, the black and whites aren't that obvious, you yeah. know, or the obvious things aren't that obvious. And you have, I think great filmmakers make the audience lead in. Mm -hmm. I, someone said someone said this recently, I heard it's, uh, I can't remember who it was, but uh, great films take the audience to the screen. Mediocre films take the screen to the audience. I think that's what I'm like trying, you know, that, that, that would yeah. be like the, the desire for me if I, if I make any short form or long form is like you kind of want to, bring the audience into the, yeah. have them lean forward, bring them into the journey, have them try and figure out things for themselves. And 
that means knowing your story completely, like, you know, Christopher Nolan does. But when the tabletop spins at the end of Inception, the audience is asking the question. He knows the answer, but the audience is asking the question and they're asking the questions among themselves, you know, and that's what makes that film interesting. There's a discussion afterwards and those films I find kind of really interesting. This episode is brought to you by our Hillsong Worshipping Creative Conference. It's for every kind of creative, whether you're a musician, singer, a graphic designer, architect, an audio engineer, or video editor. It's a place for the artists of the church to gather together, to worship, to be inspired and refreshed, and to be equipped and trained for your sphere of creativity. Find out more details at hillsong.com forward slash WCC. Now, let's get back to the episode. This is Solomon Lichtalem, and this is my Fantastic Four. Um, I think my favorite place uh, to recharge is when I get... I, I have to do this like every couple of weeks, but it's when I get outside of the city. I live in New York City, so when I get upstate, um, it's like a really good place for me just to like, you know, reset creatively, spiritually, mentally. I think it would be terrible at any job that is logistically or administratively inclined. I can't manage my own life in that way. So to have to look after others in that way, I I would just be the worst. Uh, The music album, the album I'm listening to right now is by a band called Young Fathers. Uh, It's called Coco Sugar. I want to have coffee with this guy. His name is Kari Fuganaga. He's a filmmaker and uh, he lives in New York. He did a film uh, called Beasts of No Nation uh, and a TV series that's currently on Netflix called uh, Maniac. I think the way he contextualizes the kind of current cultural conversations or political conversations even in in his films are really something that I admire and I'd love to just sit with him and talk to him about that because I feel like I appreciate similar kind of things. But staying on feature films, you're working on one at the moment. Yeah, it's yeah, it's early stages. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard ushering that into a microphone and then yeah. <laughs> to be held accountable to yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, feature films. I think every director, you know, wants to make one. I, I I will, I will say that it's it's a grand exploit. You know, and it doesn't happen for for everyone. And yeah. that, that'll be totally fine if it didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I feel what I, one thing I will say. I've been handed a couple of scripts to kind of look at and and to consider I think I've not been uh, interested because I want for the first thing that I do to really come from me yeah not in any not in any kind of kind of dictatorial sense but just because I feel like that's the thing that I can own okay Um, and I think it's so important to own what you do to to be able to stand behind it yeah the industry I think the film industry and the commercial industry you know sometimes you're hired to kind of to make something yeah. uh, for for a client or for a studio, mm-hmm. but often you are being, you know, held. You're like Pinocchio being held at strings, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that's fine. That's the part you play. Um, but I think to do a first film, I think I would like to not be held with strings, and so I'll opt for a very small budget where I can, you know, decide the actors I want mm-hmm. and be able to kind of give birth to something that I connect with and that I've written and that kind of comes from a from a deep place yep. um, and so I think it's important it's important for me to kind of approach it from that standpoint yeah. Who's, who knows then if it will get made because I have to kind of find my own resources and all that but mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the approach that I think when I look to other people that have done it and that have succeeded in kind of their journeys you know success being kind of a 
nebulous concept in itself, but yeah. that have been able to continue to make films, let's put it that way, yeah. have been the people that have kind of started with their own projects and doing their own projects mm -hmm. in a very intimate and kind of honest way. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of listeners to this sometimes don't realize because I think on average, a thousand movies get made every year. Right. That's like the average. Right. Now that can be any movie on the spectrum. Right. Completely. But then when you hear people making movies that they're passionate about. Right. That aren't essentially blockbusters. Right. They're not action movies that are going to... Because from what I, I... I had this worded last week and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Because you're like, why are all these Marvel movies getting made? Right. Why is every second movie that I'm seeing... A superhero. Is a superhero thing. It's right. like, oh, because that's a universal language. Right. And I didn't realize that. I was like, right. oh, yeah. Because everyone understands like punching. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, right. And everyone everyone understands like a superhero. Like right. it speaks everyone's language. So right. it's got this bigger market or whatever. Right. But um, the crazy realization is that sometimes a passion movie, like a lower right. budget, right. even drama now, right, can take 10 years to make. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I love in this project, Yeah, where are we up to? This project, I had the idea October last year and I went to South Africa for a couple of days. Yeah. I was actually just going for a passport trip. I needed to renew my passport, but I also took that down days while I was waiting for my passport just to like write the beginnings of the story. Great. And I kind of just sat with it and it just sat there for a bit. And I was like, I can't do this myself. Like I, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I'm not a, let me put it this way. I'm not a screenwriter. I yeah. know the story that I want to tell mm -hmm. and I can kind of write all the beats down, yeah. but I'm not, a, I'm not a screenwriter. So I approached someone and we started working on the script in uh, really kind of developed the backstory of all the characters and everything. But we started on the script in, in April. The film kind of deals with uh, immigration and how it's hard to assimilate from another culture into the American experience, even okay. though the American dream is such a thing to aspire to. It's yeah. also a hard reality for some, you know, yeah. the story kind of tells, uh, deals with, with that um, idea. And so it's something that's, Close, close to it's. It's essentially a father-son story against that backdrop, okay. But it deals with uh, those issues, so that, which are things that I feel like are, are very kind of current now. Yeah. And hopefully, there's momentum now, just because we understand the landscape of America at the moment, and, yeah. and we can kind of create it and give birth to it during this season, where I feel like hopefully it, it kind of moves people. But who knows? You know, Martin Scorsese worked for 20 years on Silence, you right. know, um, and he's Martin Scorsese. So. <laughs> And do you have much financial backing yet or is that later in the process? It'll come, yeah, it'll come later in the process. Yeah. So how um, would you tackle that? How do you approach that? Uh, I think hopefully hopefully the, the script does a lot of that. Okay. Um, I have conversations with, you know, with a company called A24 and people that have the opportunity and the, the connections to put the right people uh, into play when it comes down to it. But I think it all has to be on the paper. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's what we're trying to do now. Um, the next season, ideally, let's talk ideals. Ideally, yeah, cool. I would love to shoot it next year in the winter. It's just kind Great. of a story that's very much like, I want it to feel like Russia. Yeah. Uh, I want it to feel like a foreign film. It's like a uh, three language film. It's parts of it's in Russian, Spanish, and English. Okay. Um, but I wanted to almost feel like a foreign film set in New York um, right. in the middle of winter. So we'll see. You know, I think it's a. I don't think we're, we're talking about features. I think that's definitely one thing that for me right now is 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 a focus. But I I also feel like I still really tr I go out and just like shoot stuff like uh, you know on on a weekend. Yeah. You know, small little uh, small little things because I. You know, I kind of started at this not too long ago. Um, and for me, the process, I, 
I come from music, yeah. um, and not in any kind of professional sense, but yeah. that, that was my passion. I studied audio engineering. And so for me, the process of creating in a cathartic way, just mm. as a means of kind of letting out what's in you yeah. is kind of very important. And I think with a feature, that's it's such a long investment. You know, yeah. it's like years. And sometimes you kind of just need to give birth to things very quickly, mm-hmm. um, just almost like to let an expression out, you know? So I find that short form, whether it's a commercial or a music video or a passion project, yeah. all those things are very, um, not only useful, but actually very crucial um, yeah. just as a, as a means of kind of letting an, an expression out. I, I want to keep doing that. I don't want to just like, features isn't just this thing that's like, oh, it's like the pinnacle of what I need to kind of okay, get yep. to. It's, it's just another form of expression yeah. um, where I can, you know, deal with characters and I can kind of make people's stories come alive. But where I get to almost like cathartically say something, you know, we yeah. did like speak, that Speak We're Listening campaign here at church a couple yeah. of years ago. And for me, those projects, those kind of smaller projects, they're, they're crucial because yeah. it's also just a, a, a means to express something in a in a shorter time, for sure. you know. Um, you know, you say you just go out on weekends and you just shoot stuff. Yeah. You just do that. Yeah. Because I yeah. think I've known you for maybe like 10 years now or whatever. Yeah. Like, and for me, you feel like a director of photography to me. Right. Like I see your stuff. Right. I hear the way you speak about look. Right. And that's important. Right. And even how you tell stories. Right. Even in your short stuff. Right. Um, and it's all like it it just looks beautiful. Right. Like you nail the look. Right. Like for sure. So how important is that to you? Like how much of the story is in the look of it? Like you're saying you're like, you're like a cold look. Yeah. Where's that coming from do you think? Yeah. I mean – I like a I like I like a cold I like a cold atmosphere is like where I feel like I get to create right. uh, probably easier. So when it's summer, I, I'm not I'm not that um, prolific in a way. I think for me, I would say historically, a look has been very important for me. You know, yeah. when it comes down to just what lenses you sh- choose to shoot on, what camera you choose to shoot on, I think with the exploration of telling longer stories, I think that really has become less important for me. It's still a whole, like it's still something that's a part of my expression, but I feel like I've kind of transitioned, well, not transitioned. I've just like, my my emphasis is a little bit more different these Mm -hmm. days because I I still want to tell stories visually. Obviously that's, you know, that's kind of what I feel like I do, Mm -hmm. but I really want to, we've said it earlier, but I really want to give characters a sense of three dimensionality. I think Stanley Kubrick is a great, uh, visual director, obviously, Space Odyssey is a testament to that, but yep. he's also a very good conceptual and performance director. And yeah. for me, it's just it's an it's another uh, step or process to learn. Uh, I haven't I haven't done like a lot of work with actors and performances, but over the last two years, I have. Uh, it's, okay. it's it's become more of a thing. I just did like a. Uh, do you feel like you're getting better at it the more you do it? Yeah, yeah, I. I feel like it's really just a process of understanding what you are good at and the way you work. And I think that's different for everyone. I think for me, one thing that I've realized is I'm a lot better at working in a slightly more improvisational okay. way. Yeah. I get the most out of actors. Mm-hmm. Their performances seem to feel a little bit more uh, alive and raw when I work in that way. And so to really kind of save the storyboarding process yeah. uh, for things that are technical. The camera needs to move here and then needs to move there mm-hmm. and an actor needs to move this mark. And, you know, storyboards are helpful for those things. But 
other than that, I think I really kind of like the process of really working with the actor and doing a rehearsal and kind of finding out, you know, where they kind of like to move and then yeah. allowing for some improvisation within that. Right. So it's just really about like finding out which way you like to work. And that might change as yeah. well. That's been the journey for me. I, I now can almost like write it down on a, on a piece of paper. Like this is generally how I like to work. And I, and I do that when I, you know, have to write treatments for commercials yeah. or music videos or whatever. Yeah. I guess in closing, what would be your thoughts around how does it all work together? Like your faith, your skill, even your stage of life. Like how old are you now? Uh, 32. So being on the same age, there you go. Oh, so being yeah. 32, again, like all the pieces, like young yeah. family, got this skill, got this passion. Yeah. Um, you've also got jobs to do. Yeah. You've got your faith in Jesus. Yeah. How would you kind of describe where that's all going, where that's taking you, do you think? Yeah. In a way, like this is a hard yeah. question, but like what's your calling? Like yeah. where are we going? Well, I mean, we, we spoke about this a couple of days ago, maybe yesterday that talk that Denzel Washington gave at yeah. the commencement speech at the university. I can't remember which university it was. Mm -hmm. And he talks about having this thing that God has put in you. Yeah. And until that thing comes out, there's going to be a sense of, and I'm paraphrasing, but there's going to be a level of dissatisfaction. Right. Yep. And I feel like that's been a kind of a similar thing for me. Kind of the road is is not very kind of specific or very clear. I know I want to kind of make films and yep. and those things, but there's not a penultimate. Okay, that I think also think that's dangerous. You know, yeah, like yeah. having a penultimate and then you get there and then it's unfulfilling. Yeah, I think the only thing that I know is that like God's given me a gift to make films and to tell stories in a visual way. Yeah. And so I've kind of just gone with where God's kind of led me yeah. in that. And I feel like it's been a very, to me, it's been a very kind of interesting journey. It's not been something that I've been able to kind of specifically plot out, but I feel like there's been uh, just some incredible kind of opportunities within that. And even just like a lot of like self-learning that has happened within it. The thing that I feel is that God's really, really interested, not so much in what you do, which is very important, yeah. but in what's in you, like to say. And yep. I, I just watched this film called A Star Is Born. I don't know if you've seen it, but yeah, it's, it. it's it's really good. Bradley Cooper in the film says what's what's really, really yep. important. Everybody has a gift. Everyone's yep. like super talented, yep. but not many people have something to say. Yep. And I think that's the thing that I felt for the while. I, I definitely feel like God's given me something to say. And that yeah. something to say works itself out in the talents. Mm -hmm. And I also think that thing works itself out in the people that I meet and the conversations that we have. And those two things are, I think, very important. And I think uh, often the skill and the talent makes also ways to have conversations because I think sometimes yeah. those things speak more to people than hiding or burying a message right. uh, as opaque or as clear as it might be yeah. in the work. I think there's, but I've, I've just had so many very interesting conversations around these opportunities that have kind of opened up in secular contexts mm -hmm. that have been very kind of interesting to me that I wouldn't have, have otherwise have had. Yep. So it's been interesting. No, I love it. Like just it's such a convicting thought. Yeah. Like with what you're doing, like what is it saying? Right. What what is your message? Like right. is, I found that very, very challenging for sure. Yeah. And I think for me, if I kind of peel that all back, if I were to answer that question, I think it always kind of changes. But I think at, at the heart of it, I for me it's the same thing that Scorsese wrestles with is how does what I believe hit the road where people are at? 
Yeah. And his films explore that. And that's what I want to do with my films. And yeah. sometimes that becomes very clear in a silence way. And, you know, if I use Chris Scorsese as a, an example, and sometimes yeah. that's maybe a little bit more opaque or hidden in a mean streets way. Yeah. But I think those are the things that he wrestles with. And, you know, I've come with, watched so many interviews and conversations with him and it's it's very interesting you know how he wrestles with those two things and that i think yeah. it's my interest as well awesome well solomon thanks for your time i enjoyed thanks our chat yeah appreciate you having me on hopefully we can keep having more of them yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> awesome appreciate it that's it from us I loved how, and I don't know if you noticed, but I loved how he kept referring to different directors and producers and people who inspire him throughout the interview. He's obviously watching and learning and being open to, to, to seeing how other people do things, how they get their message across, how they make film, how they inspire creativity. And um, that's a lesson for us all. We can look to other people for how they're doing our craft and how we can get better. The other thing I love about Solomon though, is that he's not confining his creativity to just the work that he's sort of paid to do, but he uses his paid work to be able to do what he would call passion projects. And really throughout it all, he's utilizing his creativity and utilizing his gifting and talent to be able to bring meaning to the world and to explore faith and and really faith where people are really at. And so he's not separating his faith from his creativity or his faith from his work, but it's all mixed in together. And he's outworking his faith through his creativity, whether that be the work that he's paid to do or the work that he does for passion. And I find that inspiring because I think there's so much in there. There's, there's the faith element of not allowing our faith to become this separate thing that we just do on a weekend in church or just do in you know in our spiritual lives or 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 the other way around to have faith and and separating that completely from our creativity and then also not being he's not held back by the constraints that i think many people seem to be held back by for me for example if someone's not asking me to be creativity or if, or if i don't have an avenue for that creativity then maybe maybe i might stop and i might not create because there's no outlet for that but instead Solomon he he's creating outlets for that if you look on his website you'll see a whole bunch of his work much of his work is a passion projects and many of them are Vimeo staff picks of the week he's creating a platform and a space for his work a because he's being inspired by other people and learning and and becoming great and then not being held back by by the constraints, but working hard at creating a space for his creativity. And then in that, also not allowing faith to be separated from it and his the way he sees the world and his relationship with God and the questions that we all wrestle with. So I think he's an inspiring character and I think there's much we can learn from him and implement in all of our creativity. So next up, we've got today's Q&A. So we're answering some of your questions. Let's jump straight into it. We've got a great question here from Amanda, and I read the question and thought, who could answer this? Vicky Ruff from our team is the best person. So I grabbed Vicky, and she's here with us. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Rich. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so this, this question that Amanda's written in is, when do you move from creativity into execution? So moving from dreaming to deadlines. That's such a good question. Yeah, so you would kind of handle the creative moments for our team. How do we do that? 
I suppose we, this probably sounds a little um, restrictive, but I don't, I don't think it really is in reality. We actually confine our dreaming to, to deadlines as well. So right. we have a, a period of time in the execution of any particular event or item that we allocate to the dreaming time for that item mm. and we gather whatever resources we need or inputs we need and then the out- output of that dreaming is some sort of pitch or concept brief of some sort that mm. needs to go somewhere for approval which um, needs to be done by a certain time. So f- I think it's been a journey. I think we're getting better at it, mm. to be honest. I think we're getting much better at fully thinking through and concepting an idea prior to um, sending that to approval, which then means that there's much less dreaming needed during that execution phase because we've already thought through mm. all of the elements and obviously with some concepts that's easier than with others. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in general I would say we limit our dreaming to a certain time in the timeline mm. of executing some form of creativity. Yeah. I think that we used to, like you say, we're getting better at it. And yeah. I wonder <laughs> if we used to leave um, the dreaming part uh, to, to the last minute or too, right. too far. We hadn't, our timelines maybe weren't as long as they needed to be to right. allow enough time for the dreaming. I think that as a team, we, we have been at least really strong on the execution. We'll get it yep. done on the day. Yeah, Sunday's coming and it's a Mother's Day item. We're going to get that thing done. Absolutely, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And yet the ideas might not have been fleshed out quite like they could have been. Mm-hmm. We didn't maybe explore all the avenues of, of an idea. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of get what you get on the day. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess if I was sort of giving advice to someone, um, hopefully Amanda, um, this helps, but I would make sure that you do actually have a timeline that, that mm-hmm. includes, like you said, that phase or that that time of dreaming um, with enough time to really explore an idea and hone the idea mm. prior to then executing and then also leaving enough time for the execution to happen and like you said to um have a real deadline for both yeah and um and yep. maybe stick to that deadline so amanda thank you so much for the question i really hope it helps we've got another great question which is all about ideas so i've grabbed vicky ruff to answer this one it's about ideas and the question is really how do you choose which idea to actually do if you've got heaps of ideas, how do you start? Such a good question. Mm. Such a good question. We live in that world too, I think. We have such an overflow of ideas. There's so many ideas people around here. Right. <laughs> There's no lack of ideas. I think one of the things that we've found is that an idea doesn't hold much value if it's just an idea. Mm-hmm. So putting a little bit of extra work into each of the ideas to figure out if that can be executed, if it can be afforded, if we have the right um, people to do it. Mm. Say, for example, we'd love to sing a song that has a very specific tone and style, but the only one or two singers who really could pull that off are not available on the day. Done. Decision made. Right. (laughs) So I feel like oftentimes the minute we look at some of the auxiliary sort of questions related to that item or event or song um, answers that question for us. It could even be things like the legal ramifications of doing some sort of item. Mm. Getting licensing to do that, we can't get it licensed until it might take a couple of months, so therefore that won't be working for this weekend. Mm. There's a lot of different elements that cause an idea to be able to be done. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do is get through that phase quite quickly, so not to really labour on it, but to very quickly go, so many good ideas, 
very quickly, let's just whittle that down to the one or two Mm -hmm. that we could really wrestle over and choose which one is the right one for this Mm. particular moment, event or Sunday. And then all those ideas are not lost. So for me, that's actually hugely important. I think Mm. we don't want any of this to fall to the ground and just be wasted. So we file all of the ideas, we keep all of the songs, we keep all of the creative pitches that people do Mm. and pull them all out and have another little look (laughs) the next time we need to pick something to do. Yeah, and I think sometimes also your decision-making can be around different things. So, for example, there's a particular idea that um, we've pitched recently that I personally really liked. I mean, it was a great idea. We have lots of great ideas. It was a a strong idea in its own right, Mm. but also it was being done by a lot of people uh, who are volunteers who I really wanted to get involved. Mm. So from my perspective, that increased the value of that idea over the creativity of the idea Mm. because it's just a win for our team. It's a win for the church. It's a win for people stepping into ministry. So I think depending on the season of your team and your department, you might decision make around some different things. Mm. I think it's interesting you said that you really liked that idea and I think that's um, something to be aware of that you can be so invested sometimes Mm. in an idea Mm. that either maybe isn't that good or Mm. um, is not actually possible or budgetary (laughs) constraints or, or even... You might have a great idea, but you don't have anyone who can actually pull it off, you know, <laughs> to sing some crazy, yes. you know, song that goes up 10 octaves or something. Yeah. Um, it, it might be great in theory, yep. but in practice you can't do it. And and as a decision maker, knowing yourself and knowing yeah. um, sort of what you're basing the decisions on can be can be important so that you're not pushing the team <laughs> yeah. in a direction that's just your personal preference and it isn't actually best for the for the outcome. For the outcome. Um, I think one of the things that we've done to sort of avoid that a little bit is we have a lot of people input into ideas. Hmm. So we, it's pretty rare, actually I don't even, can't even think of a time it's happened recently, hmm. where an idea would go forward for approval that is really just one person's yeah. idea. So we, we really create a lot of collaborative working groups around ideas hmm. um, make sure that people have spoken into it. Even on the front page of our pitch document Mm. is literally a list of the different teams that have inputted into the pitch, Mm. which means that they've seen it, they believe that their contribution can be done within the time they have available, they think it's a good idea. So I think what you're seeing is very, very real. Yeah. (laughs) And I think kind of we've kind of organically created something maybe that That kind of helps us Mm. to avoid that a little bit. Never fully, but mm. one a last little, little bit. question on that: the input of leadership. Mm-hmm. So I know that some people would have their senior pastor, yep. um, or you know, leadership mm-hmm. um, speaking into the creativity. Yep. I guess there's there's so much to explore there, but one thing might be when it comes to leadership, it's so easy to get. For example, in our case, it's so easy to get Cass excited mm-hmm. about an idea. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that we've done a little bit of due diligence before even taking the idea Absolutely. to to leadership. Yes. You, you mentioned that doing that extra work is really helpful for the idea itself, but it's also helpful for leadership. Absolutely. Mm. I think it's I think it's completely necessary personally. I think that we do our leadership a disservice if we bring them something that is half baked. Mm. So or bring something that is so pie in the sky. Mm that actually we would go away, do all the work, do the research and realise it's impossible to be pulled off so then we have to go back with another idea. Mm. I think it wastes everybody's time. Yeah. And I think just the concept of trust building in a in a relationship as well, like you would want to be building trust there mm. that, you're, that when I bring something to whether it be Cass or whoever, that she knows I'm bringing something that is possible. Mm. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that actually I wouldn't have to come back in a week and go, oh, Cass, Cass I'm so we sorry. It, yeah. We can't do it. Mm. So for me, there's a real fundamental of relationship building in there and mm. building trust and creating an environment where, say, for example, if Cass ended up having to be away for a few months and she had to delegate this responsibility to someone else, she knows that her team would bring something that was feasible. Like I feel like I think about things like that a little bit, I guess. Mm. And I think that's important. And in that, it's probably, um, like you said, the relationship needs to be strong enough that you're communicating with your leadership, um, maybe senior leadership or, or creative leadership, to, to um, so that they know where your strengths lie and where where perhaps you're not so mm-hmm. strong. So if there's a request from leadership to do a, a song and dance item and you've got no dancers. Absolutely, um, yes. Then you're better not to do it. And and sometimes that's difficult as well because their heart might be set on, on that particular thing. Yeah. And I guess we would have an environment where we're not going to just say no to, you know, if if, yep. if Bobby asked us to do something, we're going to do everything we can to do Absolutely, it. Absolutely, But yes. at the same time, communicating that what level we might be able to do it yeah. or what that might actually look like. Yep. It's not going to be 500 dancers. It's going to be one yep. or, <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so there's, there is that real element of trust in leadership, like you said, and that ongoing communication and... Um, choosing ideas that actually fit the environment, fit um, Absolutely. who you have and 100%. talent and all that. Yeah, so. definitely. Mm. Anyways, well, I hope that helps answer that question and helps you create great ideas and choose the ones that are going to really win and, and push your service or team forward. Well, that's it for today's episode. I really hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. That's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and even YouTube. We'd also like to hear from you too. So if you have a comment, you can do that on our Instagram, which is at HillsongWCC, and we'll see you next time.